and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What's my miles per gallon on this car? Has anyone has anyone checked that? Has anyone checked? Okay. We're going to talk about that in a bit because we have a very special guest today. I'm super excited and the mood in the room is awesome. So hopefully this conversation will go immediately downhill and you will all say Richard never say that again. Besides me, Richard Littauer, hello everyone. We have Eric Berry as one of the hosts today. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing dandy. How are you doing? Doing dandy. And our guest today is Jeff Huntley. Jeff Huntley is a longtime open source developer, advocate, general coder dude who's really interesting for a lot of reasons. Right now, he's calling from a building in Sydney, Australia, which looks like it's the bottom of the basement of my high school. This is different than how it normally is, where he's normally living in a van down by the river. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. It's good to finally catch up, Rich. I think the last time we caught up, we were nerding deeply about birds, but this is not the Bird Nerd podcast. We're here to talk about open source and sustainability of it. Eric, lovely to see you again. Fantastic to see you. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm pretty excited to cover the topics that we're going to be going over today. We were talking about birds and it was pretty weird how like intense some birders are. But then you also are intense. You have a van, which you've been living in. How long have you been doing that now? Coming close to a year now, I've built out a van that has close to 800 watts of solar panels on the top of the roof of the van, full inverters, lots of batteries, and I mux five internet connections together into a single internet link. Just that's what you do. But you did that partially because you're not just a van life aficionado in the same way that Dominic Tarr isn't just a sailor bomb. You also maintain a lot of open source code, right? Yeah, I got involved a while back in a project called Reactive UI. And it was, I got involved because the maintainer that was maintaining it, I suppose this is a common trope in open source, is that maintainer left the project and there was no succession plan in place. So what does this project do? So Reactive UI essentially allows programming similar to Microsoft Excel using observables. So using the primitive of iObservable, and it's declarative way of programming a user interfaces. Really cool. Sounds like an awesome project. So you've actually been doing a lot of different sorts of projects, and you're not just a JavaScript developer, right? How did you get started with coding, and how did you end up being willing to take over an open source project that takes a lot of maintenance? Yeah, sure. It all started about 11 years back. I was crossing over to be a software developer, and I joined a small team of software developers. But I was coming from a Unix background and they were .NET developers. And so thus I went across to Mono and then from Mono that led to Xamarin. Uh, And I was building mobile applications with .NET and there was something about this project. It just, it made a lot of sense. And really, how did I get into it? Well, it was for personal development and learning. Like I found at the company, I didn't really have a mentor as such. And I found in open source, there is an unlimited supply of learning. If you just turn up and say, how can I help? Can I help you? I always like teaching people who come into the field, this philosophy or way of looking. In our industry, there are people who build bridges, master bridge builders. And if you want to learn how to build a database, well, the maintainers of SQLite are there. Right. And they know how to build a database and they will teach you if you 
hang around and help out. No other industry has our opportunity if you just do the one simple thing of just turning up, sticking around and helping out. And that's how I got involved in my project. I didn't understand much at first, but I just hung around and just kept documenting everything. We had a project that showed potential and we didn't have a website. We didn't have documentation. We didn't have any of the branding, all these other things. So these are common problems in open source. We have a lot of focus on the code, but there's so many different ways people can contribute to open source, even if you still don't understand the code base. Really resonate with that. It's interesting you mentioned bridges for a couple of reasons. I think the first reason for me is whenever I think of engineers and bridges, I think of Canada, where if you become an engineer, you get this ring. And the ring is given to you when you graduate that shows you are now able to engineer stuff. But not only that, you've been inducted into the League of Engineers. And the ring is made with a specific metal, which was the same metal. It used to be they used the actual metal pieces, but now they just use the same type of metal of a bridge that collapsed from engineering overload. And so it's a way of saying we take responsibility for our work. And I've always loved that. I've loved that induction. And in open source, there's something similar, which is kind of the maintainer position. It says, you've stuck around long enough that we're going to give you merge access. And you're taking responsibility for this code in a way, which is a good thing. And also very powerful, very like salient moment in a developer's life. The other reason I mentioned Bridges is because, of course, Roads and Bridges by Nadia Eggball was one of the like, main books that talked about the digital infrastructure. I know when I first met you, I met you through Open Collective. We had this little group of maintainers and we were trying to talk about things maintainers face. And there weren't many people in that group. I was wondering if you would talk about the amount of maintainers out there and any opinions on, say, the engineering code versus maintainer parable that I I just mentioned. I was curious on your thoughts on it. So the ring you're talking about is the iron ring. I'm a very big fan of that notion as well, because it speaks a lot to do ethics and professional responsibility for things that you create. So when you first given merge access, that is a real mood and vibe. Like, like for anyone who's first gets that, like it's leveling because anything that you do is done in public. And there's always, when you give that commit bit to someone, there's always this leveling, like almost fear and anxiety in that person who receives that commit bit. They don't want to screw up. And I'll give you an example of my first screw up. I, I think I pushed master on my first one and the old maintainer like sent me a Twitter DM, like arresting me with like emojis and everything. So like pull on over, which was, you know, like, and then they taught me how to actually do pull requests, right? I was given merge access before I even knew how to do pull requests back in like early 2010, 2011. So yeah. I'll never forget 2013, Gergu running down the stairs at me. <laughs> this look of horror being like, we're not giving you Git anymore. You need to learn how to use Git. This is horrible. And I'm just like, what did I do? Same problem. Yeah. So one thing to always remember is problems can be fixed with a pull request. Open source software is as is. There is a lot of pressure on open source maintainers to do a perfect thing, but really our software is released as is with no warranty and it's in the license. We forget about this. So we put all these pressure on volunteers. I suppose if you look at the core community of GitHub maintainers, so if you go to github.com slash maintainers, or is it github.com slash open source? There's actually a community and gathering of open source maintainers and there's only 2,100 people there. These are the people who like their software is on Mars. So yeah, Rich, we've 
first conversations were around open collective and about sustainability of open source. We're thinking, what can we do to actually turn these people into like digital artists? We now look back and say, like classical painters like Monet did amazing works, but died in poverty. I think there's some strong connections we can do between, say, an artist like Monet and some of the maintainers in that community. I agree with you. I was actually introduced to you by the CEO of Gitpod. I found Gitpod the other day, and Gitpod is a tremendous tool that I immediately saw the potential for helping open source grow. Do you mind introducing Gitpod and explain what it is? So Gitpod is essentially a developer environment in the cloud, but it's more than a developer environment in the cloud. Right now, it's using VS Code. So you can go to any GitHub repository and click on a button when you install the Chrome extension, but that's not needed. You can actually just prefix github.io, hashtag the Git URL, and that will give you your open source project running in a browser. Now, why this is really good is it gives a standardized development environment. If you think about open source and the, the funnel of attracting contributors, if your contributing.md has a large list of things and dependencies someone has to do open source to contribute to your project, they're not going to do it. So the idea there is to condense all those steps in contributing.md into a standard Docker file. Gitpod will use that Docker file and will give you a developer environment where open source contributors can contribute to your project. But it goes one step further. It actually pre-builds the pull requests. So that allows you to be able to hop between different pull requests and you don't have to wait for compilation because they're already been pre-compiled. So and it just basically means each browser tab is the pull request. And then when you're done, you just close the tab but you're not cloning down locally or any of that stuff. It's lovely. That's what I found too. One of the things that I looked at when I found Gitpod is I, I was very curious on how it was different from tools like GitHub's Code Spaces and Cloud9 and all those other online editors that I've seen, but particularly Code Spaces because anything that's really you know, sanctioned by GitHub seems to be rapidly adopted. However, I have been seeing all over the place now Gitpod. It's, it, I'm saying gitpod.yaml in so many open source projects that I haven't before. Why are people adopting Gitpod and what makes that different? What's different between that and code spaces? One of the main differences with Gitpod is the focus on ephemeral, very similar to like a like Docker and Docker containers and ephemeral infrastructure. The developer environment is ephemeral. So you would open up the pull request, you would open up the pull request. And that will give you a developer environment just for that pull request. As soon as you close the browser tab, then that's it. It's just thrown away. It's ephemeral. Instead of creating, essentially replicating the local developer environment that's on your computer in the cloud, when you have ephemeral-based developer environments, you actually have a lot more security because you don't have to worry about compromising anything that was on your computer because you're actually accessing it with that context and everything in all those changes in those pull requests. If you had developer secrets on your local computer or you start sharing pull requests from different types of contributors or onto the same cloud machine, then you run into issues of security. I love it. But I've been using Gitpod off and on quite a while now and I've been super impressed. One of the things that I thought is the most impressive is that you really can go to most projects and become a contributor immediately 
by clicking the GitPod link. Because as you said, instead of downloading and setting up the environment, and sometimes it might be in a language that is not what you're used to doing. So for example, if you want to go learn a different Rust package or a Go package, you can go become a contributor without having to set up an environment that you've never done on your computer before. I think that's really big. What's been your response so far that you've seen? We've received a lot of excitement from people in the community and especially people who work in doing training or workshops or anything that involves having to create developer environments because it allows them just to send a singular link. And it's like, all right, class, start your work. Or the same thing for open source maintainer. It's like, we would take a pull request, just click the button and you just make the change, right? You don't need to do anything. It just reduces all the friction. And that is the purpose. But I'd like to stress, like, it's not about like Gitpod versus code spaces or another product. It really, it's all about the developer experience. Like myself personally, I have all my open source software and source available software in a single mono repository. And we'll link that in the show notes. And I actually have it configured so it works with dev container, Gitpod and code spaces. And I can open that in any of these things, including VS Code locally. And it's all sharing the same configuration. The main point is get your contributing.md into a Docker file. And then from once you've set up instructions for your open source project are consolidated into a Docker file. Like your contributing MD should be like we're talking about human process, not talking about like set up, install this software, et cetera. That should be condensed into a Docker file. Once you've got that Docker file, then it's just a matter of configuring the JSON or YAML for each one of the products to reference that Docker file. So one of the things that's interesting to me, like this is great and I can see how it would be useful for various things, but Gitpod is also relatively new. It started in 2020, raised $13 million, of which a lot of that is going to internally, but also some of it's already been given back to the community of open source developers. And you were talking earlier about, wouldn't it be great if we could pay the 2100 core maintainers who you know are arbitrarily in this GitHub repo, but generally represents the large amount of open source developers who are actively working right now with code that's on GitHub, which is the number one place in the world. So if there's like less than 10,000 super important maintainers in the world, Gitpod is working actually towards paying those people. And it's doing this by doing the DevX conf, by giving back money. Can you talk a bit about how you're using Gitpod to try to like solve this problem of maintainer sustainability? This really gets back to Nadi Abigail and her roads and bridges. She did some really pivotal work with Ford Foundation and like created this notion and this a uh, way of comparing that digital infrastructure that society is built upon is just like physical infrastructure. But with physical infrastructure, we pay taxes to councils and councils hire people to maintain those roads. But there's no equivalence in digital infrastructure. And the second part getting into here is a person in Australia, Russ Keefe in the Python community. He did a, a talk, PyCon AU, which actually one of the first talks I've ever seen about supply chain. And it's talking about the responsibility to support and your supply chain. So some of the work we're doing here at Gitpod is based upon those two people and their work that's happened there. So we've created a sustainability fund of $30,000 initially. And we've gone through and we've actually went through our bill of materials. And we identified projects that we depend upon and we've started sponsoring them in GitHub sponsors or OpenCollect. Now, 
one of the things we found in that is it's still too hard to give projects money. The conventions. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I, I snicker at that because I know exactly what you're talking about. Getting money out to developers is a really complicated problem. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry, but yeah, definitely. No, that's exactly is a really hard problem, Eric. Like, I had to email people by hand, and I had to like clone their Git repositories. Luckily, in Gitpod, so I didn't have to do the clone. That's one thing you don't have to do with Gitpod. You just put the URL, and then it, it, it's all in the cloud. And I look for the email address of each maintainer and then I emailed them, hey, can I give you money? Well, we haven't documented the conventions in open source and how to give money to open source. And we have to go through and like email lots of people by hand and saying, hey, we'd like to buy you some beer. And it could be tea or what else have you. So I'm talking about beer money here because I think it's important that open source projects maintain their project roadmap and financial independence. If you have one project that gets a large amount of money, then all of a sudden that from a single person or a single company, all of a sudden that project loses a lot of its independence. We had this problem originally in the early days with OpenSSL. People are only paying for feature work, not maintenance work. So it's really important to pay, I think, normalizing the behavior of companies giving beer money. So what do you think that beer money does for the maintainers? Because somebody might be listening to this and think, well, beer money, that really doesn't make any impact at all. From the view of the maintainer, how do they feel about that? Like when you were talking to these guys, what was the response that you were getting? What's important in open source as an open source maintainer is people can really consume your time and really much your energy. But the other aspect is like asking someone to also contribute financial resources. I think that's a step too far. And that does happen. We have open source maintainers paying for infrastructure to be able to run their projects out of their own personal pockets. So when you start getting beer money, you remove one of those things from the equation. Like in my case, we was sending stickers around as backer awards and that was paying for postage. And all of a sudden, all that stuff that would normally would come out of my own pocket, that to actually thank you and reward the community for doing positive behaviors, it was no longer coming out of my personal pocket so I could start doing it. So back to the original is the response I've got from open source maintainers that we approached, like, hey, we've used your software in our product is, it mirrors uh, exactly how I felt. People are very excited just to even know that you're using their software and how it's getting value. They're very excited that people value the software. Some people said that I don't need the money. I'm a high paid software developer. Can you redirect the funds to companies and initiatives such as Outreachy that resolve diversity in open source? So one of the problems in open source, when we look at it, is it's built upon volunteer labor. And volunteer labor, by definition, people who have time to donate. And overwhelmingly, that tends to be younger males. And not to draw like lines upon gender, it's, it really just comes down to those who have time to donate, time to be able to do open source. Anyway, so DevXConf was something that Gitpod ran. And what we did was we set aside all the profits from the actual conference plus an additional contribution from Gitpod. And uh, we thought, 
long and hard about like what we could do to help support open source and help improve diversity in open source. And we came up with the idea that we'll set aside $10,000 and we'll allow the community to vote on what open source projects to support. And we use the idea of like, what is digital infrastructure? But when we're selecting the projects, there were 17 projects in total. And we specifically chose what projects meet the definition of digital infrastructure. What is something that developers every day consume and just don't think about, just take for granted the same way that when I drive down a highway, I just take for granted. And then we came up with the idea, linters and implementations of language servers, or LSPs. We use them every day as developers. If they weren't there, we couldn't do our jobs effectively, but we just consume. That's fantastic. I also saw that you or the DevX conference, when you were distributing that 10,000, you actually applied the quadratic funding model. We talk about that quite a bit on here, and I don't want to kick a dead horse. It's not a dead horse, a very live and thriving and beautiful pony, but I think that's pretty neat. How many people were involved on that distribution? Were you able to bring in more community members to help decide where those funds were allocated? So quadratic funding was new to me, actually. Eric, thank you so much for introducing me to the notion because I was trying to find a equitable way to do funding that kind of pushes voting away from the edges, like something that's a little bit more democratic. So the way that we did it was we created a, when the conference was running, we created a room in our Discord, www.gitpod.io slash chat. And we listed each one of the open source projects, which each one of the linters and LSP projects. And we just allowed people to just vote for them using emojis, like a thumbs up one. At the end of the conference, I took a summary, just counted all of all the votes. I allocated each vote as being a $1 share because we're not doing match funding as such, and then set the total pool as $10,000 US. And that allowed the distribution. That's how we managed to do the calculation of distribution. Somewhere out there, Kevin Owaki has a big smile on his face. That's what I was just thinking. I was like just scrolling through Kevin's tweets, trying to find out how much money Gitcoin is given to open source. Um, oh, yeah. I think it's in the 20 plus million. I've always been enchanted ever since looking into Gitpod about the motivations behind a company. You have some companies that create products in an effort to help open source. And I think a lot of those products, at least in my experience through the Code Fund days, is a lot of these projects were how can we capitalize on the opportunities of funding open source? How can we capitalize on this? Whereas it seems and it feels different with you guys. I did have a chance to talk with Sven. Sven is the CEO, right? I did have a chance to talk to him. Fantastic person. I'd like to know more about the background of your team because uh, it really seems like you guys are different. So the background of Gitpod goes back to a company called Typefox. Typefox, you might know, they created Thea, which is a IDE in the Eclipse Foundation. And if you go back even further from Thea, you get back to the Xtex days and Sven and all the other technical co-founders of Gitpod are all traced back to those days. So open source has always been something that is part of the philosophy of the founders. And we built Gitpod to kind of fix our own pain in developing. So we build Gitpod with Gitpod. And once you experience the workflow of just be able to open a pull request in a browser tab and then just close it and just throw it away and then get a brand new one again in a brand new browser tab, it is lovely. 
it is absolutely lovely. And I guess that's what we want is to encourage these practices where you can just do development on any device from anywhere. And that's really important. Like, at least for myself as an open source maintainer, I've merged pull requests when sitting on a toilet. I think everyone has. I'm not sure if I've hit that achievement, but then again, I'm not at your, <laughs> I'm not at your open source level. <laughs> I usually watch TikTok on the bathroom. <laughs> TMI, just, just TMI. That's great. Jeff, you're working really hard on Gitpod. Are you one of the main engineers there? We didn't introduce you very well with your relation to it because I wasn't sure. I'm just curious. I am part of a team that uh, focuses on a community and work with the engineering team. So I'm looking specifically at open source and open source communities and how we can actually improve Gitpod for people in the open source community. Awesome. Which includes dogfooding, which includes basically the core mission of Gitpod. So your role is really important there. Gitpod's now one of a whole bevy of other things. You know, Gitpod, Gitcoin, Open Collective, like there's different ways of getting money. I'm curious, how are you structuring partnerships? How are you making it easier for developers to know about the whole suite of tools that are at their disposal to try and get not just beer money, but sticker money, backer money, and eventually, hopefully, things like UBI coming out of code? So one of the first things was the creation of the open source fund, and then from there, generating our build materials. But in the blog post, there's a decision matrix. And I've done conference talks on... we propose this decision matrix. So it's highlighting this decision matrix again for other companies like to decide. Like if you take a dependency on open source project, you can either contribute with time or money. Right? And if the project is of critical importance to your company, then maybe you should contribute with time. And maybe you should maybe become a core maintainer of that project and, and do open source Fridays. So every Friday People in your team help out that project with time. So it's a decision matrix as such. So one of the things I'm wanting to do is just popularize the notion of just helping out and to lift up people who have come before me in their work and people like Nadia and people like Keith and just draw more attention to the existing work that's come before me. We've talked a lot over Twitter and... It's interesting that you and I had the same sentiments and ideas around things, especially when I was running Code Fund. I mean, you were thinking in the same space that I was back then. So what do you want to tell the sustainers out there, that bit of knowledge that you have that can really help others? I suppose one of the things I really want to highlight is to open source projects. Please document the process of how projects and companies can give projects money. Not every company or not every person would manually go through their bill of materials, trying to get email addresses and sending up Zoom calls with people to say, hey, I need to give you a couple hundred dollars. Hey, I need you a thousand dollars. Hey, I need to give you some beer money. Like that's like not everyone would do that. Like you got to really believe in open source sustainability and these notions and getting towards UBI. Like someone's got to go first. That's a lot of effort for someone to do or a company to do. Someone shouldn't have to do that. It should be very clear how companies can support their supply chain. So if you're part of GitHub sponsors, please configure the YAML and enable the button on your repositories. If you're in OpenCollect, please do the same thing as well with, with the YAML configuration. Think very carefully. If, you've, if this topic is new to you, 
Think carefully. Do you want to do GitHub sponsors or Open Collective? There is a big difference between the funding platforms down from a financial level down to the community, running the community level. So the reason I did personal conversations with open source maintainers because I was starting from the assumption that they've never thought about this topic before. And this is a conversation I had with them. GitHub sponsors goes directly to the maintainer. And if it goes directly to the maintainer, then, then there's no transparency of how, how the funds are used. And transparency is not a requirement, but there's something to think about. If the funds go directly to the maintainer, then essentially they have to declare that income. And then if they want to then redistribute those funds to pay for stickers or postage or what else have you, or to pay someone else, then it's essentially getting double taxed on the money. So think very carefully whether you want to collect funds under your name, and that is fine. I know many people in the open source community who run open source projects who enforce the as-is, meaning they close GitHub issues and pull requests unless they have financial support. It's still MIT project, but they enforce the as-is clause. And through doing that, they collect money through GitHub sponsors and they're able to take their spouses on cruises. Lovely. That person is not in the game to build communities. That person is in the game for happiness. So, And that path is valid. But if you're looking to build a community, you should consider Open Collect and Open Collective because what that allows to happen is the funds go and are hosted in a nonprofit. So thus, the funds aren't taxed. You don't have to clear that income. And you raise expense claims against that, that nonprofit. And when I say you, it doesn't necessarily mean the maintainer. We had scenarios in the community where I was able to <laughs> say, hey, someone else in the community, here's a list of backers. Could you order the stickers and then mail them out and just upload the receipts and how much it costs for the postage and to order the stickers and do the expense claim? And then I get the expense claim and then I approved it. So I was able to delegate work. So that's one of the key differences is to think about if income starts coming in and there is income coming in. A lot of people in, in disbelief when I show them Webpack has distributed close to a million dollars in funding in open source, just to think about it because we're getting very close now to a stage where we've normalized or getting to a point where normalizing sustaining open source developers. It's very early days, but I hope... In the next five years, with this notion that we have independent software developers that have complete autonomy is something that is very much a normal thing. It's talked about, but we only have breakaway cases at this stage. I hope in five years' time, we have less breakaway cases. So just think about what are you trying to do? If you put funds towards the community and run an open community, that is lovely. But there are times when you will decide that you no longer want to be involved in that project. And then you have to do succession. And if all the funds go towards the project, not towards you as a person, then what do you do when you decide to move on to the next project? So it's a really tough question because someone who creates or popularizes a project to a level where a large amount of funding can be obtained through Open Collective will potentially can do the same thing again and again if they're sustained. So thus creates this, to my mind, a conundrum of do you sustain the project or do you sustain the individual person? 
I don't have good answers to that yet. We saw a lot of discussions recently with the Babel project about this. People were pointing towards the project, but ignoring the fact that the steward of the project, the maintainer of the project, that one person can uplift the entire ecosystem. What is the value in that? And why aren't we doing that yet? So it's something that we need to figure out. That is an open question for someone that comes after me to solve and think about. I've often thought about the five years from now, and I agree with you. It does feel like we're in this shifting time where things are moving very rapidly, especially in the, not just the funding. And I think that maybe it should be stated, not funding and open source sustainability are not equal. I mean, it's definitely a part of it and it's not necessarily a necessary part of it. But I do believe though, in five years that you won't have problems distributing funds. I think that problem will be solved within the next five years. So that'll be good. So- Eric, what do you think the next five years is going to be? I guess I can answer that kind of in a way that based on my four years with Code Fund, the mental model that was happening. And, and you mentioned Keith earlier. I actually spoke with Keith right when I started Code Fund, or actually before that, it was Code Sponsor. And I hopped on a call with Keith and tried to convince him that this was a good idea. And he was completely against it and partially against the whole idea of getting paid, if I remember right. Talked to other developers that back then I was trying to validate the idea where I said, hey, I think that this can help you a lot. Let's get you some money. And they were actually offended by the idea of getting paid for open source. And so what's happened between then and now, I think, is a couple of things. One, we have these giant champions in our industry, such as Nadia Igbo, as you mentioned, Pia Mancini, and a lot of people that we've had on this show. And they are actively working towards changing the mindset of the community. You know, 10 years ago, you think of open source as like free money almost. Nowadays, you look at open source and you think, okay, well, I'm looking at this, but there's so much behind it that I don't see. There's so much time and energy and tears possibly and all this stuff that you don't see. But the understanding of the difficulty of being a maintainer the difficulty of, of basically taking on a second job without a second pay or second income. And that, that's really what it comes down to. So as we as a people, as we as a community decide, okay, well, this is really important. Hopefully we'll all collectively decide on, okay, well, we need to fund. Companies need to fund. Companies need to be able to fund in a way that benefits them. In the next five years, I, you know, with everything in the blockchain space, with everything and that we're seeing, I, I just think that we're going to have very different conversations and very different problems in five years than we are right now. I think we're just at the beginning of this giant bell curve of open source sustainability. Richard, I'd love to hear your opinion on that too, actually. Well, I think Jeff's opinions are really interesting too. And this conversation has kind of made me realize what I ought to do is read some more the more complicated books on my shelves about mental models, because this is a really thorny problem. And it's difficult to say for any given project, well, you should do this, or you should do this, or you should do that, or you should do that. I'm seeing a lot of trade-offs in what Jeff is suggesting, saying, you know, choose whether you're using sponsors or open collective, because sponsors goes right to you and open collective goes right to the project. And like both of those are actually highly problematic in a lot of different ways. One of the main problems with having open source and money combined together is that then you're basically incentivizing a certain subset of people to try and get money. And I'm actually like coming up with like a mental block because there's just so much problematic there. I'm not even sure where to eloquently begin to talk about the problem of having money in open source. And then there's the other thing of like, well, choose whether you give time during your work week or money to a project. And it's like, 
Actually, that's really tough because those are the same things in my society. I mean, in America, time is money. That's like something that's like inculcated in it's calcified into how we think about things. And you mentioned earlier that the diversity problem stems from the fact that only young men have the ability to actually do open source. I would go even further and say young white men because they're the people who benefit most from the current structures in place. So when we're talking about, well, do you use GitHub sponsors or do you use Open Collective? You also have to think about how are you actually triaging your level of difficulties and your level of issues that you want to address in a project. It's one of the reasons I really like the as-is concept in open source. It's just saying, listen, I made this one evening. I'm not bound to it. If you have an issue, well, whatever. And yes, it doesn't help with the community, but it's really blah, blah, blah. I can't deal with this all. It's too complex. It's one of the reasons why I like having people like you on, Jeff, because what it helps me figure out is, okay, what's this one avenue? In your case, it's I really want freedom to be able to do the things I want to do. I don't want a house right now. I want a van. I really like that about you because that reminds me of me. But you also have things like, I really want to help communities of coders out and help them do code better. So I'm working on Gitpod right now. Is Gitpod Gitcoin? No, I'm not using crypto stuff. It's just this other way of doing this problem of getting funds to developers and having better work environments. And so I don't know, holding these conversations is really important. I think in five years, we're going to have better mental models for how to deal with these things. And that's kind of what we're trying to do on this podcast and in the sustained community. And anyone who's listening, please feel free to jump in and talk about it. But what we're trying to figure out is how do we talk about things better? What's really interesting about open source is that it all comes down to an ideology. All of this comes down to this whole idea of like, hey, maybe it's better to share stuff in public using this weird licensing tool instead of like keeping it to yourself. And I think we're going to see a, a bigger evolution of what it actually means, what the ramifications are for having a certain ideology in play before you begin coding or as you go forward and mature your communities. I think maturation is going to be more important. And I think also me shutting up is going to be increasingly more important. Jeff, any thoughts? Yeah, so much. Let me share. Beer money is lovely at first when your project starts getting beer money. And then all of a sudden, lots of projects start giving you beer money. And then now that you've got to pull the money, you now have a problem. And I think we can learn a lot by looking at business books, for example, on like, how do you protect money? Or how do, what is the, the right way to use money? Because all of a sudden now there's money, you now need to think about, are you employing someone as such? And if you're employing someone, how do you evaluate their work, where they've created value and how much do you pay them? Like what is the rate of labor? How do you protect against fraud and embezzlement of money? What is processes that you need to create for expense claims, et cetera? When you start going down this path, you're hop, skipping a jump away from all the systems and thought process that an entrepreneur would have to do when they have to create their own company. So I think there's one of the reasons there's such a strong connection now in 2021 between technical founders and, and also open source is because you have to go through and think about these things. And but anyway, actually, but anyway is a really good point because unfortunately we are wrapping up on time. If you have a final thought, get it out. I just want to make sure that we actually get there and feel free to edit this out if you feel like that's more relevant. Sure. Yeah. How to use money. I suppose I'd leave to everyone to think about when you do have money and beer money is coming in, consider maybe not paying your developers. Instead, use the funds to access the resources or people or services that you cannot attract to your project. That could be a tech writer. It could be a community manager. 
It could be a designer to give you a project a logo or open source projects need a logo and not. I went around doing DevX and I was asking open source projects. I wasn't saying why we were asking them, but I said, I just need a logo for some marketing efforts. And a lot of projects just close the issue because like, we don't have a logo. So use your funds to bring yourself joy. Think about all the things you do as an open source maintainer and the things that don't bring you joy. That's what the funds should be used to do. So you can focus on the things that you enjoy doing. If you enjoy doing community work, then maybe you pay developers. But if you enjoy doing software development, maybe you pay someone to do community work, vice versa. Think about how you use your funds in a way that allows you more scalability and also less chances of burnout because you're focusing on what you love. Love it. I'm a practicing Buddhist going back to joy, loving kindness, right there on my list of things that every single conversation should end it. So totally love that. Jeff, it's been an honor to talk to you. There's so much more I want to talk about. This conversation in particular was one of those ones that just scratches the surface. And I just like, I, I just keep wanting, I have so much to do and, and talk about here. Where can people find you online to learn more about what you have to say? Yeah, sure. Myself personally, ghuntley.com, as in jeffreyhuntley.com. And I forget pod, gitpod.io. If you head to the blog post section, you'll find information about the sustainability fund and more recently, how we used quadratic funding to actually distribute funds for the competition for DevXCon. Awesome. Thank you so much. For longtime listeners may note and new listeners may not know yet, we also had a wonderful podcast with PM Mancini and Kevin Owaki, where we talked about quadratic funding and how we're using that in fundoss.org. For more conversations on this topic, please go to the Sustain Discourse, where you're free to talk to other people about sustainability issues like this. And again, G. Huntley, and that's L-E-Y. Thank you so much, Jeff. Now it's time, before we wrap up, just a tiny like little bit for the spotlight part of the show, where we highlight things, services, people, open source projects, gods, what have you, that have helped us out in our lives and we feel just need a little love. Eric. What is your spotlight today? I actually have one that I found today or yesterday, but I use Gitpod as, as you know, quite a bit, but I also discovered another tool called GitHub 1S. What It's github1s.io. And if you go there, all you need to do is, or you go to any GitHub repo and then change the domain from GitHub to GitHub 1S. And then it opens up in an online version of VS Code, which is outstanding, especially if you're, just wanting to open up and search for code real quick. It's a great way to do it. But the pick that I have, the spotlight is not only that, but it is the Chrome extension. And this Chrome extension is built by a developer who goes by the name. Let's see here. I got to make sure I give him credit. ZVI out of Jerusalem. And what it does is it adds a button, a drop-down button to your GitHub page, any repo, and it just says open in. And so you can select any of these things. So it has Code Sandbox, GitHub 1S, REPL, Gitpod, Glitch, and Source Graph. So fantastic tool. Thank you for making that. I use it every day now. Awesome. Thank you so much. My spotlight is relevant to code. It is the Vermont Commission on Native American Affairs. This is the department that's actually in charge of dealing with Native American affairs in Vermont, in particular, the Abenaki people who have been here ancestrally for 13,000 years and are still here. There are four state-recognized tribes, 
by the state. None of them have been recognized federally by the U.S. government. And it's an interesting question as to why we don't hear more about Native Americans in code. Why is that? Probably because of existing structures, which cause us to actually sideline Native American and Aboriginal peoples. So when I said it's relevant, I'm saying it's relevant because it's not part of the conversation all of the time. I recently met someone who's on the Vermont Commission of Native American Affairs, who was a lovely person. And I think that this sort of work is incredibly valuable for fixing the issues that we have with diversity everywhere, but also on places like GitHub. So that's just something that has sprung to my mind recently, thankfully. Jeff Huntley, what is your spotlight today? Sure. My spotlight is on code, the open source project pre-commit. Pre-commit is a little project that you can hook as uh, pre-commit hooks, as a standardized framework for pre-commit hooks, which will allow you to run things like linters and everything like that. And the reason I'm spotlighting it is an example. It's digital infrastructure. People use pre-commit as part of their day-to-day work and as a good example of a project that you can go sponsor. Right. If you look at your bill of materials at, at your company and you'll find things like pre-commit in there, just think about that as an example. Pre-commit or other projects like pre-commit, what is digital infrastructure? Ponder upon that. If pre-commit was to no longer be there, what would the impact be to your team? Love it. All right, Jeff, it's been great having you on the Sustain podcast where we always end with more questions than answers. But I really enjoyed looking at your pink hat. Thank you so much for being here and joining us for this conversation. Looking forward to talking to you further. Thanks again.